Hello all and a warm welcome back to the brand spanking new series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, series number four now. Bloody hell, where on earth does the time go? I'm your returning host Paul, the creator and True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title and it's fabulous as ever to be back with you all. I'm refreshed, refocused and back ready to go after a well needed break from the grind of it all because it proper does get on top of you this second job podcast in Malarkey. It is worthwhile as ever, but a bit of downtime does get necessary every now and again. And it is also great to have you guys back here joining me for it, which as ever means the world. I hope that you're all good and well and the episode finds you all okay. Now during the mid-series break, I haven't buggered about with the show very much at all. The Patreon tiers may have been tweaked somewhat slightly, the wording in them. I may have a search about for a new theme tune and I may have a bit of an altered show logo. But apart from that, it's business as usual here. You know, the fridge chalkboard's now full once again and name some prospective cases. You get the usual nonsense waffle from me at the start. The odd mention of Crime Watch and how much I despise the BBC for being twats. And still as ever, a focus upon an obscure or unfamiliar case, a solved one or an unsolved one, from the shores of the UK and Ireland. As ever, there remains a shout-out for anyone who fancies researching and writing up a case that you think is a good fit for a show episode to get in touch, so if you've got one that you can think of, you know where you can reach me with it, and I will also still continue to promote other shows from the true crime genre by doing promo swaps, the first of which will be coming up shortly in the episode. Now some new features that I do have from this series onwards is that now each episode show notes will feature the details of a couple of tracks that have provided the soundtrack to the episode being written against. I always usually have music on when I'm writing it and the track playing when the first word is typed and the track playing when it's finally been triple checked once it's finished that will ultimately go through the series and will form a True Crime Enthusiast podcast playlist for Spotify each series going on now so you guys should you wish to you can listen in and you can hear the kind of stuff that i use as a background for writing the show at least once a series as well at least once a series i will from now on cover a bit more of a famous case in an episode than i would usually choose on the show maybe even a classic case I know I've said that I always shy away from these, but I've had a few listeners get in touch with the show and inquire about me doing this, and I've come around to the thought of giving my spin on a few more familiar tales, shall we say. Massive thanks must go out as well during the break to my new and returning Patreon supporters of the show. Now I've had quite a few, that's namely Josie Miller, Cat Lowe, Sarah, Lindsay Day, Stan, Matthew Craig, Laura Stevenson, Buxton, Andy Parrish, Zoe Slaughterhouse, Dawn Smith, Virginia Bridger, Pippa Clayton Smith, Jennifer Jane, Fiona Crisp, Jennifer Covert, MJ Horton, Charmaine Shives, Caroline Bowen Fleming, Callum Stevenson, Alison Boyle, Sherry Poole Todd, Kestrel Halliwell, Carol Wood, Miri Dean, Vanessa Meachin, Cinny G, Andy Sutherland, Stella Singer, Kirsty Redman, Alice Crofts, Mandy Latcham, and the Evil Minds podcast. Absolutely proper sterling of you, that is, guys. Thanks so much, and I hope that you've all enjoyed the bonus content and for some, the items that have been sent out. 
You too can join these guys, like Daredevil, on a nudist beach. It's not hard at all. Just use the link in the episode show notes or look for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. It's very cheap and it's very worthwhile, even if I do say so myself. Who loves you, eh? So before we start Series 4 of the show, I do have a promo for you for a fledgling show from one of my very kind new Patreon supporters, the Evil Minds podcast. It's into its first series right now and it started great, it's presented so well and some fascinating, well-chosen and covered cases can be found within. You can grab it from pretty much wherever you get your shows from to listen to and a link will be in the show notes this week as always. But don't take that from me, I'll pass you right over to the host Steve so you can hear what Evil Minds is about for yourselves. Hi, this is Steve from Evil Minds a brand new weekly podcast dedicated to true crime. On the podcast, we will cover some of the most horrendous true crimes that have been committed in the UK and elsewhere. Some of the crimes you hear about will be known to you, others won't. We'll cover the lesser known ones as well as some of the more infamous ones. Some of them still remain unsolved. So please join me every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. Finally, a big thanks to the true crime enthusiast himself, Paul, for giving me this opportunity to have my promo played on his show. Thanks very much for that there, Steve. That's the Evil Minds podcast, available pretty much wherever you get your shows from. Why not get yourselves all over it, because I'm sure you won't regret it. And now, back to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast and the opening episode of Series 4. But just before I do, though, I have to say it's fantastic being back. I really, really have missed you guys a lot. The case that I've chosen for the Series 4 premiere, I've gotten over the season series debate kind of thing now. Well, I still wobble on. It doesn't really matter, does it? You know what I'm going on about. The case took place at the end of the noughties and it's a bit of a hometown unicorn for me because it took place very, very near to where I live. So several places that you'll hear mentioned in the episode are locations that I know very well and I'm very familiar with. And as a result, I was able to go on location, if you like, to visit these. Not in some kind of ghoulish mecca kind of way. Rather, as I've done with previous episodes of the show in past series, I've taken several videos at these locations to help add some colour to the narrative so you can see for yourselves exactly where I go on about and what's depicted in the tale. And all of these will be added to the episode thread on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook group. The case in question this episode deals with an extremely calculating killer, the lengths that the killer went to to try and conceal the crime, and the remarkable and complex police investigation that followed to solve the case. It is quite a complex and full-on tale, but that's what we snap up here on the show, isn't it? As ever, the episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, so discretion is advised. Bearing that in mind, it's a warm welcome back to you guys, and please join the True Crime Enthusiast as for the first episode back of the new series, we look at a case I've entitled Tatty's Story. If you follow me on social media, you may or may not know that I live in the town centre of Wrexham, the largest town in North Wales. I think I may have mentioned it in an episode or two of the show before, plus it does say where I live on my Twitter handle. 
As the largest town in the North Wales area, the Wrexham area itself is comprised of its town centre, plus several of the outlying villages around the area, with one of the largest of these being the village of Gwersalt, about two and a half miles outside of the town centre. Now I usually like to bust out an interesting stat or two from the Wikipedia page of wherever I'm talking about, but Gwersalt's page is proper dull, it's like reading What Mortgage or something. The only point of official note is that Gwersalt is where the studios that broadcast Capital Northwest and Wales Radio are based just off the main Wrexham to Mould Road. I can come out with a couple of personal anecdotes about the place instead. I often go to the Little Later shop. It's got my favourite Chazza shop there in Gwersalt. And a pub there, the Wheat Sheaf, used to be so rough many years ago that barbed wire soup was the delicacy on the menu there. That's the kind of place I'm talking about. Very, very near to the Wheatsheaf pub is a gated community block of residential flats called Bryn Owl Court. And back at the beginning of 2008, a flat on the ground floor was home to 41-year-old Ermatati Rogers, who'd lived in the Wrexham area since 1997. Ermatati was Indonesian by birth, hailing from Padang on the island of Sumatra, where her father and relatives still lived and in 1996 she'd met and began a relationship with a chef named Jason Rogers from the Wrexham area of Rosset, who she met while he was in Padang during his travels around Southeast Asia. The relationship soon became a serious one, and by 1997 Ermatati had married Jason and had moved over to the UK to begin a new and exciting life, where they settled back in his home village of Rosset. And for a few years, life was indeed good. Ermatati liked the area where she'd come to start a new life. She brought her Southeast Asian cultures and customs over with her, which she maintained, and was always conscious to send gifts and whatever money she could spare back over to her family in Indonesia. Reportedly, so many parcels did she send home that Indonesia's postal authority at one time wanted to charge her family tax. But this was typical of the kind and generous woman who easily made friends and was described variously by them as loyal, warm and a loving person who they knew affectionately as Tati and how we shall refer to her throughout the episode. However, by 2002, Tati and Jason's marriage had begun to cool as things sometimes do and the couple had separated the following year in 2003. Within a year of this, they were divorced. Following the collapse of her marriage, which reportedly she took quite hard, Tati had decided that she wished to remain in the Wrexham area, where she worked in a local dairy, and where a large community of friends were, and to this extent she found herself a ground floor single bedroom flat in the Gwersalt area of Bryn Owl Court. Over time, Tati managed to pick herself up after a failed marriage. She focused upon her job as a production operative at the former Dairy Crest plant in the Wrexham village of Mark Wheel, where she worked for several years and which she enjoyed. Her resurgence and rediscovered zest for life had also been helped with the support of the many friends Tati had made over her years in the area that she enjoyed spending time with, and she made sure that she saw her as often as possible. Eventually, with a view to settling down in a serious relationship, she even began dating again, although had no serious boyfriend. Particularly close friends of Tatty's were Hannah Sabrun and her parents, the Reverend John and Anne Jones, 
whom Tatty had known for several years after a chance meeting at a local post office, and who lived around six miles from Gwersalt in the Flintshire villages of Leeswood and Trithin, respectively. Now, the former is coincidentally my home village, and it's where my mum and dad still live to this day. The new year of 2008 was only four days old, and having spent the previous Christmas and New Year catching up with friends, by Friday the 4th of January, Tatty was looking forward to seeing the Jones family, as she'd been invited up to Trithin for a belated Christmas lunch with them the following day. Happy to do this, late that afternoon she confirmed her visit in a text message to Hannah, along the lines of as follows. Hiya, just to let you know, see you tomorrow around 1.30pm. See you soon, T. Kiss. Tatty then went shopping, undoubtedly as was in her nature to buy groceries to be able to prepare some form of a dish that she could take up for her visit to contribute to the meal. By 1.30pm the following day, however, there was no sign of the usually prompt Tatty at the Jones household which they at first put down to the fact that Tatty, who was a non-driver, may have been stuck on a bus that was late or had broken down. There's no rail service to Leeswood or Trithin. They were surprised at the lack of an explanatory telephone call or a text message at least to explain if this were the case though, and by 2pm this was beginning to give way to concern. Repeated attempts to contact Tatty via text message and telephone calls were unsuccessful, as though her phone was out of range or switched off. And by about 3pm, Anne and Hannah were that concerned, they decided to drive down to Gwersalt to see if Tatty was at home, thinking perhaps she may be ill or injured. Reaching her flat, they found it to be locked at the front and back, and with no answer from repeated knocking, they decided to contact other mutual friends they had to see whether Tatty was possibly with one of them. However, doing so drew a blank. Concerned by now that something had happened to Tatty, because this was so out of character for her, Anne and Hannah decided to report a disappearance to police, doing so at Wrexham Police Station, which although is an iconic building in the Wrexham skyline, it's a massively ugly one. It's horrific. Have a Google of it, see what you think, Anne. It's actually due for demolition relatively soon, I believe. So convincing were Anne and Hannah in their fears that police did indeed take them seriously and they dispatched a police patrol to Tatty's flat to investigate further. They found the property the same as Hannah and Anne had, locked up and when asking Tatty's immediate neighbours in the block if any of them had seen her or knew of her whereabouts drew a blank, they made the decision to force entry to the property. They did this, but they found nothing untoward inside. It was clean and tidy as always. There were no signs of any disturbance. There was even prepared food in a wok on the kitchen cooker hob, as though Tatty had just nipped out and was expected to return at any time. In fact, the only two things of note that the cursory search of the flat provided were Tatty's red address book containing contact details of all her family and friends and a till receipt from a nearby Gwersalt supermarket, dated and timed from the previous afternoon. So as this was totally out of character, a missing persons inquiry was launched, and using the itemised till receipt, CCTV was soon obtained that showed Tatty, dressed in a black jacket and black trousers with a white stripe down the side, purple bobble hat and scarf, 
entering and shopping in the former Gwersalt Retail Park Summerfield supermarket around 4.30pm the previous afternoon. She can be seen on CCTV stills wandering around the shop and was then caught on outside CCTV leaving to make the short quarter of a mile journey back home from there on foot. After this though, there was no sign. There was CCTV outside Brinowell Court, but it was not working at the time. Using her address book that had been discovered in the flat, one by one police contacted all friends and acquaintances at Tati's, both in the UK and Indonesia, to see if they could provide any information that may assist in the investigation, which as time passed, police became more and more convinced was suspicious and Tati had come to some harm. But this drew a blank, until four days after her disappearance, when police got a breakthrough. They reached the person who'd last seen Tatty. Lukas Respondek, a 27-year-old Polish national who lived in the Rostutlan area of Wrexham, was a friend and co-worker of Tatty's at the Dairycrest plant, where he was employed as a cheese cutter. Whilst police had gone through the previous contacts in the book without success, when they reached Respondek, he came forward to say that he'd spent Christmas and New Year in Poland with his wife and two children, visiting their relatives, but he'd returned to the UK earlier than his wife and family so he could return to work and had visited Tati upon returning late in the afternoon of Friday the 4th of January as he had a belated Christmas present for her. He claimed that she'd been happy to see him and had asked him to give her a lift into Wrexham Town Centre as she was planning to visit friends who lived there at about 6pm. Respondek told police that he agreed to do this and he took Tatty the short journey from a home in Gwersalt into Wrexham, dropping her off opposite the racecourse football ground at the junction of Yale Park and the Mould Road just before 6pm. She'd waved to him before walking away in the direction of her friend's house and he'd driven back onto the A483 to drive the short distance of about two miles from here to his home, number 25 Trinity Street in Rostutlan. Now this was crucial information for police as they now had someone who knew Tatty who could place her possibly near to Wrexham Town Centre itself an hour after the last confirmed sighting of her on CCTV. However, when CCTV that covered the town areas was scrutinised, Tatty, nor anyone matching her description, did not appear on any of the footage. If she'd been dropped off there, as Respondek claimed, then surely she would have appeared, wouldn't she? He'd already become a person of interest to the investigation, as admittedly he was the last person to have seen Tatty, and police now began to look more closely at Lucas Respondek. Respondek, a married father of two, had moved over from Poland to live and work in the Wrexham area in 2004, at first coming over by himself whilst his wife and family remained back in Poland. He found employment at first in a fast food restaurant, then in a factory on the industrial estate, before in late 2004, he found and settled at a job working as a cheese cutter in the Dairycrest plant in Markwheel. It was whilst working here that he met Tatty, who was also employed there at the time. Now perhaps it was because they were two like people, you know, far from their native countries, that they identified and bonded, but they soon became very good friends. 
They worked together on the production line at the plant there, where during work Tatty would help Respondek with his English, whilst he would in turn help her with various jobs and errands that she needed. They became such close friends that Tatty had even offered him the use of her one-bedroom flat so he could stay there with his wife when she came over for a visit to the area before she moved over permanently. So it was established that he knew Tatty well, they were good friends, and he was seemingly only too anxious to help police. But with the absence of anyone else to look at, with Tatty having no serious boyfriends, as the last person known to have seen her, Respondek was already police's main person of interest. Yet he was only too open and eager to assist in any way that he could, and raised no objection when police asked for his electronic items for examination, his mobile phone, laptop and digital camera, for the purposes of eliminating Respondek from the inquiry. He gave all of these to police, even reportedly offered police his car for examination. Meanwhile, whilst one team of officers were doing this, at the same time the officer leading the inquiry, Detective Chief Inspector Wayne Jones ordered a full forensic search of Tatty's one-bedroom flat. Police had already been into the property on the Friday evening and had found nothing out of place or any signs of disturbance, and the property had remained sealed since then. But now a full forensic examination was ordered to give police a chance to establish against an inventory if there was anything of Tatty's that was missing, clothing, jewellery or belongings that may help establish where she may be, but also looking for the things that aren't visible to the naked eye that may help shed light on what had happened, for example, any microscopic blood splashes that may be about. It was also a chance to gather items of tatties that a DNA sample could be obtained from, perhaps a hairbrush or a toothbrush, so in the case of a body being discovered, which isn't defeatist or jumping to conclusions, but rather being realistic, an identity could be ascertained or ruled out. This is how the inquiry was run. Police were that early convinced that she'd come to some harm. The entire flat was meticulously taken apart, photographed, filmed and documented, but nothing of Tatty's was found to be missing. Wherever she was, she was without a passport, her belongings and any spare clothes, as though she'd just intended to return a short time later. No signs of any disturbance in the flat was found either. There was no blood staining, no scuff or drag marks or damage to the property that would suggest a struggle or violence had taken place there. But what was found during the search, on the mattress and sheets in Tatty's bedroom, were traces of semen. It suggested evidence of recent sexual activity having taken place there, but according to her friends, Tatty was not in a serious relationship with a boyfriend. Further, she was described as religious and took her faith seriously, believing in non-promiscuity and not likely to entertain sex outside the confines of marriage, so this posed police with a bit of a head-scratcher. Samples of the semen were retained and were sent away for an analysis. At the time, a match wasn't found. By the time a couple of months had passed since her disappearance, Tatty's friends around the area were still clinging to the hope that she would be found alive, but as each day passed, the hope that she'd be found okay dwindled, and was instead replaced with the growing dread and sadness that something awful had happened to her, 
I mean, it has to have, doesn't it? And police shared the same feelings too, because all lines of inquiry that they'd undertaken hadn't found her. The routine house-to-house inquiries in the Gwersalt area had all drawn a blank. CCTV had only revealed Tatty entering and leaving the Summerfield store that Friday afternoon. All possible sightings of a woman matching Tatty's description had been investigated and ruled out, and following the text message sent to Hannah Sabrun at about 6.30pm that Friday evening, Tatty had seemingly dropped off the face of the earth. But that isn't to say there hadn't been any developments in the investigation, for by then police had a prime suspect that they believed was responsible for Tatty's disappearance, and by that time, her murder. One that they'd had since very early in the investigation. When police had seized Lucas Respondex electronic equipment only a few days after Tatty's disappearance, the items had been sent to the North Wales High Tech Crime Unit in St Asaph for examination. When the items were examined, and deep searches of the memory and hard drive of the digital camera and laptop computer were performed, which took time due to both the complexities of the searching involved and the undoubted backlog of items that the unit must have to look through each day, What police were to discover was both extremely telling and also extremely disturbing. A series of deleted pictures that were found in the memory of Respondex digital camera showed a woman police could clearly identify as being tatty from both her physical characteristics and the background location of the photographs, which had been taken at her Gwersalt flat in varying states of undress. They were described as being glamour-type photographs, and in some of these, Lucas Respondek also appeared with her, again, in varying states of undress. It suggested to police that he hadn't been as forthcoming as he appeared, and that he and Tatty were more than just close friends. Rather, they were involved in an affair, or at the very least, a casual sexual relationship. But there were other, more disturbing discoveries found. Respondex internet search history was looked at, and whilst most of it was routine and unremarkable, largely consisting of very little except visits to a site hosting an online medieval fantasy role-playing game named Plemiona, two very recent search items were found that stood out amongst the orcs and wizards, and that made police very suspicious. Only two days after Tatty had disappeared, Respondex computer search history showed that he'd accessed the Polish Wikipedia site where he'd begun searching for terms including Gnicki, not sure how you pronounce it actually, G-N-I-C-I-E, meaning to decay or putrefy, and Saprophytic, concerning creatures that feast upon dead matter and organisms. A short time later, he'd also looked up search terms more directly along the lines of what happens to buried bodies and How long until a body rots? So it's not looking good for Respondek already here, really, is it? Okay, so wait until you hear this then. Also found in the deleted section of the hard drive of Respondek's laptop, the parts that only the proper boffins can get to, were several indecent images of children, 
a mixed bag containing images that met the criteria for each varying category of seriousness as are outlined in Section 1 of the Protection of Children Act 1978 and Section 160 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988. A folder on the hard drive contained 83 different images, most of them at levels 1, 2 and 3, but 6 of them at the more serious levels of 4 and 1 at level 5, the most serious kind imaginable. Experts who examined the computer found that there had originally been 302 files in the same folder, including 67 videos, but they had been deleted by the user and could not be recovered. All files had been the subject of search words that were indicative of child abuse. The photographs featured children as young as 8 to 10 years old. Pretty much something that doesn't bear thinking about whatsoever that, isn't it? Upon discovery of these images then, Lucas Respondek was arrested over possession of unlawful and indecent images of children. Images that he denied were downloaded by him, naming two other Polish nationals who he claimed had had access to the same laptop computer as being the guilty party or parties. Nonetheless, Respondek was charged with the offences and was released on bail pending trial later that year, provided that he report to police at specified times and surrendered his passport to save him fleeing back to his native Poland. Of course, when he'd been arrested, as is routine, a DNA sample had been taken from Respondek, and DCI Jones's team, who'd been closely following developments with their now prime suspect and with the knowledge of the deleted pictures from the digital camera, now performed an immediate comparison of Respondek's DNA against the semen sample that had been taken from the bedsheets at Tati's flat. A week or so later, the results of the DNA comparison were back and the chances of the semen taken from the bed at Tati's flat as belonging to anyone other than Lucas Respondek was found to be one in one billion. So in the eyes of the investigating team, they were looking at just one person, one prime suspect, and you don't really have to be murder she wrote to see why, do you? Respondek was admittedly the last person to see Tati alive, Police had photographic evidence that suggested the married Respondek was likely involved with her in a sexual relationship, plus his semen had been found in her bed. Add to that the questionable and coincidental search history that was found on his laptop, plus his current status of being on bail for possession of disturbing and indecent images of children, and it was time to consider, was Lucas Respondek a murderer also? Police thought it likely, but the stumbling block that they had was that there was no body and no actual proof of murder. After the passage of time and with no reported sightings, it sadly did seem as likely as Brexit being resolved sensibly and cogently that Tatty was still alive somewhere, but without a body it makes bringing charges of murder extremely difficult. It's happened scarcely in British criminal history, and a bit of a spoiler here, but there may just be an episode later on this series that deals with a couple of cases where this has happened. Well, there is no maybe about it at all. It's already on the fridge. So with Respondek out on bail awaiting trial over possession of the indecent images of children, but still in the Wrexham area, police now began a full-on look at his life and background. Apart from the charges he was now facing, he had no criminal record or convictions, 
and had in Poland been a skilled electrician. But early in 2004, he'd moved over to the UK for the opportunity of better work and life prospects, settling in Wrexham, which has one of the most sizeable Polish communities in the UK. Now I must stress here, I was careful how a word did that. I don't want to come across as something from a Shane Meadows film here and be all like, oh, bloody foreigners and everything and all that. To me, thinking like that is proper bollocks straight away. I would hate to live anywhere that wasn't in some way influenced by or have examples of other cultures. And the Polish people that I know, because I've got a couple of neighbours and I even had a Polish flatmate some years ago, I found to be warm, hard-working people who not only love the area that they chose to make home, but they appreciate it and they work hard to give back to it by integrating their culture into it also. I'm all for this completely and I'm especially fond of the several Polish delis and supermarkets that they have in the Wrexham area and the fabulous pastries, oh, I'll tell you what, wow, is all I can say. But I digress, as I often do here on the show, don't I? As part of this full-on check of Respondek then, when police made a search of Respondek's financial transactions over the first few days of 2008, they discovered something of massive interest to the investigation. Massive. Apart from the substantial amount of money spent on petrol over the 3rd and 4th of January, because it must cost a few quid in fuel to drive back to the UK from Poland, two of Respondek's credit card transactions from Saturday the 5th of January, the day after Tati went missing, caught police attention because it was this crucial time period that they were scrutinising. Firstly, Respondek had that Saturday lunchtime visited the Wix DIY Superstore on Wrexham's Border Retail Park, where CCTV obtained showed him entering the store at 11.50 and spending several minutes and a considerable amount of money buying several items on its credit card. Then about 30 minutes later, he was in the now defunct TJ Hughes store, located just off Henblast Street in Wrexham Town Centre, where he spent £30 on a single item. The items Respondek had bought at Wix were not itemised individually in this transaction history, there was just the collective amount that he'd spent. So an officer was sent down to the Wix store to examine the historical till receipt from the time frame that could show exactly the items that Respondek had purchased, which could be identified by the individual catalogue numbers that were retained through scanning the barcodes. Within moments, he was back on the telephone to the incident room with a detailed list of Respondek's purchases. The day after Tatty had last been seen, Respondek had been to a DIY store and had bought a pack of 10 dust sheets, a torch, some gloves a set of snap-off blades, several rolls of double-sided tape, and a spade. And the item he bought a short time later at TJ Hughes for £30? A large 135-litre Lila Starburst patterned suitcase. Now hearing that, I bet you're now thinking the exact same thing as police were when they heard this inventory. Respondek had bought himself a body disposal kit. Police now had to act, and on the 21st of April 2008, Lucas Respondek was arrested by members of DCI Jones's team, where he was taken into custody and transported to St. Asaph Police Station to be questioned by detectives. 
At the same time, Respondex House, number 25 Trinity Street in Rostutland, was cordoned off and a team moved in to undertake a full forensic examination of it. Things like this make the news, don't they? And following this development, a spokesperson for North Wales Police issued the following short statement. As a result of police investigations, the investigation is now being treated as a murder inquiry. The family of Irma Tati, or Tati as she's known locally, have been informed of the latest developments through liaison with the Indonesian embassy. Over the next three days, after an application to extend his custody was granted by magistrates in the North Wales town of Prestatin, Respondek was questioned in St Asaph about the now-suspected murder of Ermatati Rogers, which he denied knowing anything about. He stuck to the original tale that he told police back in January, that he'd visited her flat to drop off a Christmas present for her, and he'd subsequently dropped her off opposite the football ground before heading home to Trinity Street. When it was suggested to him that he and Tatty were involved in a sexual relationship, and the presence of his semen discovered in her bed, and the issue of the recovered glamour photos was raised, Respondek explicitly denied that he and Tatty were anything except good friends. The photographs, he claimed, had been taken at Tatty's request in order to send to her ex-husband Jason in an attempt to make him jealous as she still felt bitter towards him over their divorce. Whilst the semen, Respondek claimed, must have been left as he and his wife had had sex in Tatty's bed when they'd stayed there when his wife had been over visiting, a claim that his wife confirmed had taken place when she was spoken to. The search terms on his laptop concerning decomposition, Respondek claimed, were nothing more than the results of him being bored and random online surfing, looking up something that he'd recently seen in a film that he'd watched. Although the search of Respondek's house had yielded minute forensic traces of blood, a comparison of these to Tati's DNA sample that police had already had from the initial forensic examination of her flat failed to make a match. It was not her blood, and no other forensic traces of her to suggest any foul play could be found. Even if any traces of her DNA were found, Unless it was suggestive traces of blood or on a knife or a blunt instrument in the property, then it would be weak and could be explained away because she and Respondek were well known to each other, so it would be relatively sound to suggest that she at one time could have been in his house. But whilst no forensic traces were found, physical items were. Discovered in the property were a pack of 10 dust sheets, a torch, a set of snap-off blades some gloves, some rolls of double-sided tape, a spade, and a large lilac starburst-patterned suitcase. The exact items that Respondek had bought the day after Tatty's disappearance, all of them unused, some of them still even in the protective wrapping. When Respondek was asked about the purchases, he claimed that the suitcase had been bought to replace a broken one and the other items were for home decorating and garden maintenance, which he claimed he'd bought with all good intention, but just hadn't got around to doing yet. Now these do seem too glib and convenient answers, don't they? And yes, in the eyes of the investigating team, he looked as guilty as a puppy sat next to a dog egg on the carpet, but in theory, 
they could have been honest answers and the explanations for each point that he gave could well have been the truth. It boiled down to the fact that police still had no body and without it, the Crown Prosecution Service were hesitant to bring charges, considering police to not have enough evidence as it stood to gain a conviction. Following the extension to custody, on the morning of the 24th of April 2008, Lucas Respondek was released without charge. But DCI Jones and his team remained convinced of two things, that they had the right man and that they were sadly looking for Tatty's body, which they were convinced Respondek had buried somewhere nearby. They were perplexed. Could it be pure coincidence that he bought what clearly appeared to be the items required for disposal of a body a day later, only to have the exact items unused and to hand at home? Why had he not used the items for decorating or gardening as he claimed he'd bought them to do? I mean, surely you don't get up and think, I'm going to buy a new spade today, or buy dust sheets and a suitcase on a whim. You buy things like that with an immediate task in mind, surely. And then it struck police. What if Respondek had considered that he may be traced buying these items from his credit card transactions, or they may be traced back to him if any of them were discovered, and he'd subsequently bought duplicates for cash so that he could explain the purchases if challenged by producing the items. Items that, because they were duplicates, would also contain not a single trace of Ermitati Rogers' DNA. Police went back to Respondek's financial transactions, which were again scrutinised with a fine-tooth comb against the timeline of his known movements from the beginning of the investigation, from him first being spoken to four days after Tatty went missing. Eventually, painstaking comparisons of Respondek's financial transactions against his movements that could be ascertained following him being spotted on CCTV in Wix on the Saturday lunchtime after Tatty had disappeared, revealed a cash withdrawal of £150 that he made on the afternoon of Thursday the 10th of January, the day after he'd first been contacted by police and revealed that he was the last person who knew her to see Irma Tati Rogers. With a hunch that he may have been feeling the heat then and attempting to cover his tracks as best he could, a check of purchases made at the very same Wick store that day revealed that sure enough, an identical inventory to that that Respondek had purchased five days before was purchased less than 30 minutes after his cash withdrawal was timed at and was paid for in cash. When the in-store CCTV was checked that covered the time frame, shown once again buying what appeared to be a body disposal kit, was none other than Lucas Respondek. About 15 minutes later, Guess who was seen on CCTV in the TJ Hughes store buying another large 135-litre lilac-coloured starburst-patterned suitcase? Yep. So based on these new developments, Respondek was once again arrested and pulled in for questioning, at all times aided by an interpreter. But by this time he had adapted the no comment kind of stance when the suggestion of his duplicate purchases was put to him. Through his interpreter, Respondek issued pre-prepared statements to police, basically stating that he was categorically not responsible for the disappearance of Ermitati Rogers, and they were forced to release him once again without charge. Although I can imagine you by now thinking, 
as police themselves obviously were. Bloody hell, what more do you need here? The sticking point once again remained the lack of a body. Although police in private had no other suspect apart from Respondek, I mean, what could they officially say from a legal standpoint apart from the investigation was progressing well? The inquiry was still ongoing and appeals for information featured in the local press often as 2008 progressed, but predominantly now with a focus on finding the whereabouts of items that may help pinpoint an area that may reveal the location of Tati's body. For example, anyone who'd found a discarded Nokia 6100 mobile phone similar to hers, which had not yet been recovered, and of course, the lilac starburst suitcase. A typical police appeal from the time is as follows. We are keen to speak to anyone who's purchased a suitcase of this specific design from the Chester Street store in Wrexham since January 2008. In addition, we would like to hear from anyone who's seen a suitcase abandoned or discarded since January this year. A reward of £100,000 was also by this time offered for information leading to the conviction of Tatty's killer for as we've said, it was by now a murder inquiry. As these appeals were being made, and I should stress that police were wording things very carefully here with how they did, because they already had the prime suspect, didn't they, that they're convinced had murdered and buried Tatty somewhere in the Wrexham area, a surveillance operation was now mounted upon Lucas Respondek. Police were hoping that with each appeal, the psychological pressure may build and build upon him, and if he didn't come forward and confess, then it may make him return to wherever he'd buried Tatty, perhaps to further hide her body, perhaps to remove it to a different location. With the working premise that he would have chosen somewhere familiar to him to have done so, because subconsciously, as we've said before on the show, wrongdoers wrongdo where they're familiar and comfortable with, don't they? A team of officers was tasked to carry out covert surveillance on Respondek 24-7, determining everywhere he went with any regular routes he took or remote places that he visited noted. Now Respondek perhaps had a bit of a sixth sense about these things, because it was reported that he would often use what were almost diversionary tactics whilst he was driving. He'd go right around the houses to get to some places, then he would take a different route back completely. He'd drive miles out of his way to get to one point, then he'd come back an equally strange dog's leg of a way, drive five miles instead of one. All of these trips were linked, and over time, as police looked at a map of his movements, they noticed that he was a regular visitor to the Wrexham area of Erthig. Now, Erthig is a large area of open parkland and farmland. It's most widely known for its Grade 1 listed building and National Trust property Erthig Hall, which was once voted Britain's most popular house, apparently, and it is a lovely place for a meander round if you're ever in the area. It's located smack bang in the middle of Erthig. It's got a park run there each weekend, and it's a popular spot with walkers and runners and tourists most of the year around. It's quite vast in size really as well, with very little properties located in it, the area is quite remote. It's also directly across the main A5152 road from where Lucas Respondek lived in Rostutland. But it is still more than a full square mile of open ground to try and pinpoint a gravesite in. 
Now, during research for the episode, I visited Erdig because, as I said, it's very close to where I live after all, and I've taken a video from the top of a local coal face from the former Bersham Colliery that gives a great vantage point of the Erdig area, so you can see the vast space that I'm talking about. As often as possible when Respondek was in work, so as to not alert him, police would study the dossier of his movements or try to pinpoint any areas of Erdig that were more likely than others where he could have buried Tatty. Working in conjunction with them on this were crime scene investigators and forensic archaeologists, who would monitor any hotspot areas, scouring any possible sites for signs of disturbed earth. But this was all done as covertly as possible, and when he was not in work, the surveillance of Respondek would continue. This went on and off like this until October 2008, by which time Tatty had been missing for 10 months, and also by which time Respondek's trial date had arrived for possession of the indecent images of children. I bet you'd forgotten that nugget, hadn't you? When he appeared at Mould Crown Court in October, he pleaded guilty to the possession of these, and was sentenced to 32 weeks imprisonment. With Respondek now safely locked up, an unhindered mass search of the Erdig area could get underway, and the full shebang hit it. Aerial photographs of the Erdig area were taken, cadaver dogs were brought in to search the area, specialist metal detecting equipment was utilised, forensic archaeologists examined hedgerows, ditches and riverbanks. Whenever I list anything like this in an episode of the show, you know, standard places that were searched and actions that were undertaken, I always think of Tommy Lee Jones's speech in The Fugitive, you know, the every farmhouse, in-house, outhouse, henhouse, a doghouse, that one. Fantastic movie, love The Fugitive. However, although this search went on for several weeks, stretching right into December 2008, no body was found. Now that same month, Detective Inspector Mark Hughes of Wrexham Police made an appearance on BBC TV's Crime Watch UK. I'm not even going to say anything because you know by now. Accompanied by a friend of Tatty's, Deviani Jones, to press home several points of appeal about the inquiry, which also contained unseen footage taken from a police video showing the interior of Tatty's flat. He stressed once again that police were now conducting a murder inquiry that carried a reward of £100,000. He appealed for information about the possible whereabouts of the distinct Nokia 6100 phone, and he appealed once again to try and trace anyone who'd purchased the distinctive lilac Starburst suitcase or had found one abandoned. Tellingly, he told Crime Watch presenter Kirsty Young that police knew a number of these suitcases had been bought in the Wrexham area that past January, because it was pretty much all that police could say. He, of course, couldn't give any other operational details away than this. A visibly upset Deviani then told how Tati's friends and loved ones were absolutely shattered by her disappearance, and how she and other friends of Tati's were in regular contact with her family back in Sumatra, including Tati's father, and his sister Emma, who were of course devastated and very concerned at events. However, sadly the appeal did not bring any new leads or information to the investigation. 
By the time January 2009 came around, a full year had passed since Tati had disappeared and Lucas Respondek was released early from his sentence. His house in Trinity Street had long since been relet and his wife and family had returned to Poland. No details are readily available about Respondek's family, but I can imagine things like your husband pleading guilty to possessing several indecent images of children of the most serious category doesn't bode well for a happy marriage, does it? And she decided to return with their children to Poland. Respondek returned to the Wrexham area following his release, this time renting a property in the Bradley Road area of the town, and he was also put back under immediate surveillance by police. Noting that the now shaven-headed and bearded Respondek, whose appearance had drastically altered during his incarceration, once again quickly became a regular visitor to the Erdig area, five covert surveillance cameras were now placed at strategic locations around the area that captured him on at least 13 occasions visiting the Erdig site. Another four cameras were added soon afterwards, and now police were finally ready to up the game. Still surveilling Respondek, police announced to the press that they were preparing to re-undertake a fresh search of the Erdig area, this time announcing that they were firmly looking for the body of Ermatati Rogers, and on Thursday the 19th of March 2009, the operation got underway. It was designed to force Respondek into action, and in police thinking it would provide two possible outcomes. They would either discover Tati's body in this search, with the benefit of now having a smaller area to examine this time, as they'd unsuccessfully searched large parts of Erdig some months before, or the police activity would agitate Respondek to the point where he may try to return to the gravesite to move the body, and would lead the covert surveillance team exactly to where he'd buried Tati. For the next couple of days then, the surveillance team reported increased erratic behaviour from Respondek. He was noticed buying camouflage clothing and a hat, as well as a set of binoculars. He was then spotted, even photographed, encamped atop the very same coalface that I visited and took a video from, observing the search activity in the Erdig area, which he did on the Thursday, and the Friday, and the Saturday. In between, he would leaf through the North Wales Daily Post and Wrexham leader newspapers each day, scouring for information about the police search activity. Watching the activity, Respondek was behaving like the pressure was on and something had to give. By Sunday the 22nd of March 2009, his observations of the police activity forced that something. That evening, surveillance reported that Respondek filled his Kia car with several bags of his clothing and possessions, and then drove in his car to the Erdig area, where one of the covert cameras captured him at 19.45 hours, heading down a lane in the area on foot, carrying with him a spade and a fork. No move to arrest Respondek was made at that time, but the area was kept under surveillance, and just before midnight, he was seen to reappear somewhat dishevelled, but empty-handed. He was then followed back to his accommodation on Bradley Road, where he emerged sometime later in different clothes, got back in his car, and made visits to the houses of some known associates of his in the Wrexham area. 
When he left here, Respondek was to make one more stop. Guess where? He drove to Wrexham Police Station, where at 3am he identified himself to the custody sergeant, telling him that he wished to take police to the body of the long-missing Ermatati Rogers. Respondek was immediately arrested on suspicion of her murder, and although he admitted disposing of her body, he denied killing her. In the dawn light, and reportedly somewhat relieved, he led police down to a remote part of Erthig, a corner of an adjacent field to where the search team had been examining the previous day, where he pointed out a shallow grave. Excavations later that day revealed human remains exactly where Respondek had indicated, and a DNA comparison proved without doubt that almost 15 months after she'd last been sighted on the Summerfield CCTV, tragic Ermatati Rogers had now finally been found. Her body had been buried a couple of feet down, but what Respondek had not realised when he buried her over a year before is that the soil in the area he'd chosen for a gravesite was almost clay-like. It had to some extent preserved the body in the fetal position that it lay in, but it had made excavation extremely difficult. Respondek had tried for more than three hours with a spade, a fork, even with his bare hands, but after all that time, had only succeeded in uncovering the lower limbs of Tatty. However, the clay-like soil was that difficult to move and held the remains that fast that one of her legs had actually come away at the knee when he tried to move it. Respondek then knew that there was no chance of him being able to excavate and move her remains and knowing that he was cornered, decided to give himself up. However, arrogant to the last, he claimed in a later interview that he deliberately uncovered the lower legs so police would be able to find her more quickly. Can you believe the callousness and the arrogance of this dude? Upon identification of the remains as being that of Tati, Lucas Respondek was charged with her murder, a charge which he continually denied as he was remanded in custody to await trial. Respondek admitted preventing a lawful burial, but denied Ermatati's murder when he appeared for trial before Mould Crown Court on October 19th, 2009, where over three weeks the court were to hear the events and points raised through the investigation, as I've recounted here. Alleging that Respondek and Tati were involved in an affair, counsel for the prosecution, Mr Michael Chambers QC, suggested to the court that Respondek had been unable to cope with the demands of having a wife and two children as well as a mistress, and had strangled Tatty when she pressed him to leave his wife and be with her. It was alleged that their working relationship had developed from 2004 into an affair that continued even when Respondek's wife and children had arrived over from Poland in early 2007 to join him in a new life in Wrexham. These claims were supported by evidence given in court by a friend of Tati's, Zal Mags, who told the court that she would often drive her to Respondek's house for illicit liaisons, and that Tati had confided in her that she was jealous and that, bitter over the breakup of her own marriage, she wanted Respondek to leave his wife and family and to be with her. Miss Mags told the court, 
She wanted to break up Lucas's marriage because her own marriage was broken and she was jealous. She wanted to have sex with him. She wanted his marriage to end. The court heard that at Christmas 2007, Respondek returned to Poland to spend Christmas there with his wife, children and relatives. However, he returned to the UK ahead of his wife and children only a couple of days into the new year, driving the 900-mile distance back, ostensibly so he could return early to work. As soon as he arrived back in the UK, though, he headed straight to call on Tatia at her home in Gwersalt, following a text message that she'd sent him on Christmas Day. He took her back to his home, number 25 Talbot Street, in the nearby Wrexham district of Rostutlan, and the prosecution's case is that it was there that he killed her, said Mr Chambers. They claimed that Respondek had actually gone around to Tatty's flat in the early evening of Friday the 4th of January 2008 for the purposes of sex, and had only admitted visiting here to police because he believed that he'd been caught on CCTV camera that monitored the area, which Respondek wasn't to know weren't working at the time. Tatty had accompanied him back to his home address, where the prosecution alleged that he had lost his temper and strangled her, either because she refused his further sexual advances, or had pressured him once again to leave his family, perhaps threatening to expose their affair to his wife. Respondek had told police after leading them to where he'd buried Tatty's body, that when he'd visited her on the, on the Friday evening of 4th of January 2008, he had done so only to drop off a Christmas present for her. Once there, Tatty had told him that she'd been feeling unwell, which he put down to her crash dieting, which she'd done previously, and he'd offered her his home address to convalesce at, which she'd accepted and had accompanied him home. Whilst Respondek was upstairs showering, he claimed, Tatty must have collapsed and died, knocking over the coffee table in the process because he found her in this position when he came downstairs. He claimed that when he'd found she'd collapsed and died in his home, he panicked and checking the body thought it was far too late to call for any help. As he'd been brought up in a communist state, he claimed he'd been brought up with a fear of the police and had visions of the questions that would follow if he reported what had happened, knowing how this would wreck his family life and likely cost him his job. So he spent the rest of the night sat on the sofa, terrified, next to Tatty's body, wondering exactly what to do. The next day he went out and bought a spade, some gloves, snap-off blades, a torch, some double-sided tape and a pack of dust sheets from the Wix hardware store and a large lilac suitcase from TJ Hughes. Returning home, he then placed Tatty's body into the suitcase, wrapped in sheets secured with tape, then placed it into the boot of his Kia car and under cover of darkness, that evening drove the mile or so from his home to the Erdig area, where he buried Tatty's body in a remote corner of a field. He'd subsequently disposed of the spade at a building site, the suitcase in a skip behind a shop, and a bag containing some of Tatty's possessions in a refuse bin in a nearby car park. He'd lied to police about his culpability in the subsequent months out of fear, he claimed. Describing himself in court as a religious person, Respondek claimed that over the months since he'd buried Tatty, he'd returned to a gravesite and estimated two or three times to pray. This was how he'd explained off his car being in the Erdig area on several occasions less than 30 feet 
from where Tati's lonely grave was eventually found. He couldn't answer though when it was put to him that he'd prayed on at least 13 known occasions that he'd been spotted at or the fact that he'd saved the very location Tatty was later found buried at in the favourites of the sat-nav in his car under the heading TT. No explanation for that at all. Not twisted and calculating that at all. Nope. Before he'd handed himself into police after trying unsuccessfully to dig up and remove the body, oh sorry, expose it for police, he'd telephoned his wife and an aunt back in Poland and had fully confessed to what he'd done. Mr Geoffrey Samuels QC, defending Respondek, suggested that Tatty's death could have indeed been caused by a heart condition triggered by a crash dieting after it was established that this was something she'd done on previous occasions due to an obsession with her fluctuating weight. At the time of her disappearance, she was reported to have been dieting like this and had consequently lost more than three stones in weight, dropping from nine stones to just six and three dress sizes from a size 14 to a size 8. Therefore, it was conceivable, Mr Samuels claimed, that whilst in Respondek's living room, she could have suffered a cardiac arrhythmia, a possible, although uncommon, result of crash dieting such as that, and had fallen and struck the coffee table in the living room as she did, turning it over and fracturing the thyroid cartilage horns in her throat. Now, the examining pathologist, Dr. Brian Rogers, agreed that whilst this was indeed a possibility, it was an extremely rare one, and he'd not been able to detect any sign of Tatty having had a heart condition during her post-mortem. He further claimed that for dieting to cause fatal cardiac arrhythmia, it would have to be incredibly intensive with a pronounced weight reduction, saying, if this were to occur, then one might expect to see this being a great deal more common than it is. What Dr. Rogers did find was bruising and fractured thyroid cartilage that was more consistent with manual strangulation by using either the hands or a forearm. And the jury were to hear account after account that collectively shot down Respondek's story, giving testimony from his actions immediately following Tatty's disappearance, the duplicate items he bought, the internet searches he made, through to his actions of spying on the search activity, right up to him digging up the body on Sunday the 22nd of March, and heading into Wrexham Police Station in the early hours of Monday the 23rd to confess, to an extent. Detective Constable Chris Roberts, giving evidence, was the first officer to tell the court that Respondek's version of events wasn't quite as cut and dried as he'd claimed. Before he'd bought his body disposal kit, when he claimed to be sat on the sofa through the night fretting about what best to do, searches of his online activity taken from the examination of his laptop showed that actually... Respondek had sat for a number of hours with Tatty lying dead in his front room and had played the online medieval fantasy roleplayer game Plemiona, more commonly known as Tribal Wars. When it was put to Respondek that this was strange behaviour indeed and it flew in the face of all of his claims, Respondek replied, Yes, you could say it's strange, but I cannot remember that. My brain was frozen. I was not thinking rationally or logically. I didn't know what to do. 
But the prosecution painted a different story, one that suggested that far from having a frozen brain, which sounds pretty bloody horrible actually, that doesn't it, a frozen brain, and not knowing what to do, Respondek had immediately switched into the calculating killer mode that police considered him to have. Even that Saturday morning, when he was on the way to obtaining his body disposal kit, he'd stopped at a nearby post office to fully tax his car in case he was stopped by police on his way to dispose of Tatty and was caught with her body in the boot. Considering also his subsequent actions following on from this, and it doesn't sound very much like someone who's not thinking rationally or logically, does it? I would have said more arrogant and chilling myself. I mean, buying a duplicate inventory, admitting things only because he was caught in a lie, and even saving the location in his sat-nav under TT, saying to police during his three-day questioning in April 2008, I would like you to find Tatty's body, and maybe then you would leave me alone. Maybe that would lead you to the person who has done something to her. Piece of work, that guy, eh? Of course, Tatty's body was found in March 2009, and the court heard of Respondex actions during the search for it. When the police began excavating the Erdig area on Thursday, March the 19th, they made sure that this development was splashed all over the local media, and the defendant made the error of taking the bait, said Mr Chambers. By Sunday the 22nd of March, the diggers and excavations were beginning to move very close to where Tatty was ultimately found buried, and Respondek was panicking. Mr Chambers continued, the defendant must have thought that by the Monday morning they were likely to move into the actual field and find her body, so on that Sunday night he tried to move it. However, it was much more difficult than he'd anticipated, and after about three hours he had to stop. It was only at that stage that he went to Wrexham Police Station and told officers where they could find the body. He gave the account that Mrs Rogers had died suddenly after collapsing, and that he'd panicked and buried her. The prosecution say that this was his last attempt to lie his way out. In his closing speech for the prosecution, Mr Chambers claimed that Respondek's tale of panicking after finding Tatty dead on his living room floor had been a tissue of lies, and that the cunning and devious Respondek had killed her deliberately, then buried her, and had intended Tatty's body to remain hidden in a lonely grave. He said, Quite simply, innocent people do not bury bodies. All the evidence points to murder, nothing else makes sense. There is no room for a halfway house of manslaughter in this case. On November the 9th, 2009, the jury retired after a three-week trial, where after just 7 hours 17 minutes deliberation, they returned with a 10 to 1 majority verdict and found Lucas Respondek guilty of the murder of Irma Tati Rogers. He'd already admitted unlawful disposal of her body, for which he was not tried separately. Following the verdict, it was then revealed to the court that Tati's murder was not Respondek's only criminal offence, and they were told of his conviction the year before for possession of indecent images of children, discovered on his laptop as a result into the investigation of the disappearance of Irma Tati Rogers. Four days later, after sentencing had been deferred for the study of psychiatric reports, 
Mr. Justice Lloyd-Jones sentenced Respondek to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 18 years to serve. Following this, he would be deported back to his native Poland. Sat in the dock with an interpreter, Respondek said nothing and showed no emotion as the judge told him. The premature and pointless death of Ermatati Rogers will leave a permanent shadow over the lives of her family and friends. The effect on her family has been devastating and you are responsible for that. The knowledge of the enormity of what you've done should shame you for the rest of your life. Your conduct throughout the police investigation shows you to be a devious, calculating and a determined liar. He was then taken to begin his sentence. Respondek did launch an appeal against conviction which was heard at London's Court of Appeal in September 2010. Again representing Respondek, Mr Samuels told the court that a manslaughter option should have been offered to the trial jury and it was a legitimate option in the case on the basis of Tati's death being the result of a minor assault gone wrong. He said there was insufficient evidence for a jury to safely conclude that Respondek had intended to cause Tati even serious harm, let alone kill her. However, Lord Justice Hooper, Mr Justice Owen and Mr Justice Roderick Evans claimed that Respondek's immediate reaction to the death was evidence that he'd done something very wrong. Lord Hooper said, Looking at his immediate reaction, looking at the evidence he gave to the jury that he had absolutely nothing to do with her death, the jury would be entitled to say that that is the reaction and that is evidence of someone who was murdered rather than merely committed some minor assault. The court rejected Respondek's appeal and he remains in a high security UK prison to this day. Following Respondek's incarceration, Indonesian ambassador Yuri Octavian Thamrin himself, yeah, I, that dude, visited North Wales police to thank them for their due diligence and high degree of professionalism on behalf of the embassy, his country and the Indonesian people, presenting them with a plaque inscribed to commemorate the mutual cooperation between North Wales police and Republic Indonesia during the successful investigation of the death of Ermatati Rogers. And what an investigation it was, eh? Complex or what? Now whether or not Respondek had set out deliberately beforehand to kill Tati that night will never be known. Since his imprisonment he stuck to his claims that she died of a heart condition through crash dieting, must have struck her throat on the coffee table mid-fall, and then he simply panicked and buried her body. Now if this were true, and I don't believe for a second that that is what happened, then his resulting actions were all to save his own skin anyway, and to avoid his wife finding out about the affair that he and Tatty were having, which from photographic evidence that police found, plus testimony at his trial from some of Tatty's friends, there seems to be very little doubt about. Now I'm sure plenty of people do rash actions in a panic, but even if his concocted tale were true, where any understanding you could have with Respondek's alleged story falls down is in the actions that he took to cover his tracks, lying to police, buying the duplicate body disposal items, saving the grave location under TT in the sat-nav and visiting it several times, attempting to move her body when he realised just how close police were getting to excavating her lonely grave, 
excavations that he'd watched covertly from a vantage point, and only coming clean to his family and police when he knew he was absolutely beaten and there was no way out and her body would be found the following day. And then he even attempted to explain away his attempted removal of the body as helping police out with the exact location. Actions of a remorseful man or a calculating and ruthless killer just trying to save his own skin. Whatever you may think about people who indulge in affairs, you have to remember that nobody is perfect and how many times have we all fallen for the wrong person, eh? You have to remember this was an attractive yet very lonely and perhaps somewhat naive woman who just wanted desperately to be happy and she felt strongly for someone that in her naivety she didn't realise did not view their relationship in the same high regard that she did or want the same end goal. Described in fond terms by her friends as a strong woman, was it this strong will that was pushing Respondek to leave his wife and family for her? And on the 4th of January 2008, the pushing finally got too much. Although more than 11 years have now gone by since her death, Ermatati Rogers is still held in high regard by her friends and loved ones who still mourn her loss and find the memories of her and her tragic murder painful ones to deal with. This was highlighted to me as during part of my research for the episode, I attempted to make contact with a number of Tati's friends to see whether they'd be willing to discuss her as a person with me after explaining my reasoning so I could give her that much more colour and make her that much more of an identifiable person throughout the episode. However, and I do understand this completely, I was told by them that that was something that had been very painful for them to deal with at the time and they had no wish to reopen old wounds again after so many years. I'm more than accepting of that and should they be listening in today then I do appreciate you getting back to me about it anyway and I thank you for your time. I found a fitting example to highlight just how loved Tati was in an online tribute from her close friend Hannah Sabrun posted on the Gone Too Soon website. It reads simply as follows. Tatty was a loyal and dear friend. She was there when you needed her. She was generous, sensitive and so caring. She thought about others before herself and loved spending time with all the children in her family and circle of friends. I wish she could have had the chance to be a mother herself. She would have been a great one. She is sadly missed by all who knew her. I leave this in memory of her and for a dear family who are far away, but always in our thoughts. I hope that hers is now a name that you'll take away and remember sometimes in your own thoughts after hearing her tale, more so than that of her killer, who abandoned her in a lonely grave, and then tried his utmost to escape justice for his crime. I remember vividly the activity surrounding the case at the time as it's my home area as I've said constantly throughout the episode and I remember the constant press features and local appeals for information surrounding a disappearance. Although being honest as soon as the case was first reported I remember thinking it's never going to have a happy ending this isn't. I don't want to sound dismissive there I must just be a veteran of too much true crime enthusiasm to straight off the bat think like that. Although, can you ever have too much true crime? I mean, it's the reason we're both here now, isn't it? 
Whenever I've been down to the Erdig area ever since, and it is a lovely place that I do try to get down to whenever I can, I've always thought a tatty in a tragic case whenever I've gone there. When you do a show such as this, you tend to go to different places, but when you do, you always think cases when you get there, places become cases, and I'm sure that there are other hosts out there who are listening who would agree with me. Because it's a hometown case for me, as I've said, I did get to go out to some of the locations that have been mentioned during the episode, which I made several phone videos at, and that will be available for you guys to see for yourselves up shortly in the episode thread on the Facebook discussion group. Why don't you wander over and have a look? I always find that things like that help for a bit of clarity and identification. They make something come a bit more real, don't they? As ever, you can always get in touch with me should you want to discuss Tatty's story, and I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts about it. You know where you can do so by now, I hope? But if not, details of the show's website or social media links can be found in the episode show notes this week. I hope you found this first outing from Series 4 an interesting and informative tale, though I'm sure you'll agree, a tragic one also. The thought of someone lying dumped in a lonely unmarked grave for such a long time, killed purely because she loved someone who didn't love her back and she wanted him to be with her. Well that's sad and callous that isn't it? But it was a tale that was always destined for the show as well, because Tatty's is, I believe, a name to remember. That's about it from me for the first one of this new run, once again it's ace to be back with you all i don't realize how much i miss doing the show until i haven't done it for a few weeks and sometimes it's a very welcome distraction from real life stuff so i'm rearing to go on this next lot to that extent i shall be back next week with another tale in another brand spanker of an episode which i hope you guys can all join me for i look forward to it if you can't wait until then and you aren't already then you can support the show on Patreon and get yourself, at the last count, 17 bonus episodes of the show for less than the cost of a pint. Just head over and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site, or guess where the link is? Yep, you got it in the show notes. Until the next time then folks, I have been, still am, and still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall catch you soon. See what I mean? Business as usual here after the break, isn't it? Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.